Hey guys, I am not feeling sharp today. I am still jet lagged. I've been back in Berlin for about 10 days from New York and the States, and I just can't get over this lethargic, I was going to say lethargic feeling, lethargy. Um, I have just not been feeling keen on doing much. Uh, I guess I'm kind of embodying that quarantine vibe. Technically, I'm supposed to be quarantined, self-quarantined for 14 days upon my return. In case I might have caught coronavirus in the high-risk places I was in. And I was in high-risk places, but it never felt high-risk. I think I was quite safe and sensible on my journey. Driving from California up the West Coast... Portland and Seattle, then through the north, the mountains and the plains, where I went to a lot of parks and saw some friends, and then drove to New York through the Midwest, and then made my rounds on the eastern seaboard. And it was always low-key, not always, it was mostly low-key, and in very small groups, either with one friend or at max like six people at a time. Um, you know, this whole mask thing is really blowing up as an issue, and I'm not really a fan. I'm not anti-mask, and I would never want to threaten or endanger people around me. Um, if anyone asked me to put it on, I would, and that was the case at a couple places. Um, at a Chipotle, I was asked to put one on. I was the only customer in the in the building. Um, so, I want to mark mask wearing as an issue here. I am against masks conceptually, virus aside. I don't like hiding faces. Um, of course, there's the discomfort factor, which is not a big deal. I don't want to play that up. I know that's really a talking point by the authoritarian left, shaming people for being too uncomfortable to put it on, as if it's such a big deal to save the lives of so many people. That's really the issue I want to talk about today, is this idea of, well... Maybe it's not clear, but I'll explain it. Epistemology. What do we know, and how can we know it? In the case of masks, how do we know that masks safeguard us from coronavirus? How do we know how deadly coronavirus even is? Are these questions allowed? I, I'm just skeptical, I guess. I'm skeptical enough to ask this question. And I tried to look this up online and I couldn't find it. And I'm really annoyed that I can't find this graph because if I was uh, a predominant figure in media, I would make this graph. Show me the death rate by state, by country, by world, anything, all of it. Every year, every month, going back 10 years, 20 years, I'm sure we have the information I want to see the death rate normally. I want to know how many people die on a given day. And we can even break it down. I know we can. 
And then I want to see how that death rate has changed in Corona times. I want to see, you know, a nine go to a 10 or a six go to a 10 or whatever it is. Like, I want to see a graph of how many deaths are added on top of the deaths already happening. Because right now, my skepticism comes from the fact that we're only told body count and we're only shown like numbers in a vacuum, like coronavirus deaths and how they're growing. Like that number doesn't mean a lot to me. You know, when I know that most of these deaths are uh, with people that have underlying conditions or are really old or are, you know, suffering in a very specific kind of way. And, you know, we've covered this before. I'm sure we've talked about this ad nauseum, but I'm just talking about it from a position of epistemology. How can we know the truth? And it's out there. Some truth is harder to know than others. Like there is a, there is some sort of formula for a vaccine and that is really hard to find and people spend their time finding it. And then whenever you do find it, a scientist it has to be vetted through the proper systems and channels, you know, the FDA and everything else, uh, presumably. And when it's not, we do have things like, you know, our antibody test, which is not reliable, not reliable enough, evidently. Or even if it is reliable, does the fact that you have antibodies actually mean anything? Does it guarantee that you're safe, that you won't get it again? We don't know. So some things, okay, it's fair enough that we might not know, but some things we do know. We know how many people die every day. We know basically how they die, right? Like, why isn't that out there? Why can't I find that online? If you can, do share it with me, please, because I just, I want to be proven right now again in June and now July how serious to be taking all this. And I believe that it's still serious. Now I'm in Germany, so it's less serious. But, you know, there's a chance I have it, technically speaking. Uh, but, I, again, I don't think so. There's a chance that I had it, you know, in the actual winter when I was on a cruise ship and came back to Berlin and felt really weird. And my girlfriend felt really, like, really sick for, like, over a week. I would like to know that. I'd like to rule out... Uh, whatever, like whether or not I've had it or could get it. But I can't apparently really do that. So that's frustrating. And it brings me back to masks. Maybe no one knows. And maybe we're wearing it as a precaution because it helps control droplets. And we do have strong reason to believe that droplets are a big problem. Okay, I can go with that. That's fine. But then how do we mesh that with everything else we're dealing with, right? Can we now go back to work, or leave our houses more? Can we resume big events, you know? And this whole protest thing really, I think, confounds a lot of us, like, how is this allowed? And none of these other things are, you know? And if it's about the mask, then okay. Like, then we can do a lot of other things too, right? 
And I just think it's important that <laughs> we're consistent in our practices and our beliefs. And I just, I'm not seeing that, I guess. I'm, that's what's worrying me. And it makes me just want, it, it's confusing. It's just confusing. Why can't people prove to me the efficacy of a thing, the real logic of doing something publicly? And if there isn't any, why can't we think through it better or more democratically? And how is it meted out like the shaming from why is it partisan, first of all, in America? And then how do we meet out the justice of controlling behavior? And whose behavior do we control? At the beginning of the pandemic, I was all in on the basic hygienic measures that totally made sense to me to take, to wash your hands for a good length of time, to make sure that the virus was scrubbed off of your hands and to keep your hands away from your face and to not touch surfaces in public because the, the general opinion at the time was that the virus was spread from such surfaces to your hands, to your face and into your body. And I lived very consciously like that. And I'm sure I did not, did not get coronavirus in March, April, or May. And, you know, the social distance thing, keeping a personal space, I've always been into that too. Um, I think space is something that you close in during intimacy, either with friends or lovers or family. But that it did make sense to, you know, keep your yourself away from others if this disease was hard to trace and easily passed. So that was like a fine rule. Now we have masks as the rule, but we still have social distancing, supposedly. We don't have quarantine as much, so people are kind of like leaving their houses again, mostly. Uh, and then we have these like anomalies that each get treated as like separate things for some reason. Congregations, basically. You have congregations at the church, which were shamed, um, but people stood up for their religious rights. You have congregations at beaches, which were shamed, but some people tried to stand up for their right to relax and enjoy their life in nature. And then you had congregations in the streets in the form of marches and protests, not to mention the looting and, and rioting, but we'll leave that all out of this. And these somehow were accepted. Like, it's okay, actually, to break all the rules we've been extremely serious about now that a policeman has murdered somebody. And now you are allowed to take to the streets because that, that virtue of outrage trumps the virtue of public safety. And that literally is how it went down because these protests were applauded by the same kind of authoritarian leftists in lower forms of power. The president is not on the left. He's a Republican. 
And he's been actually like way more like relaxed about it and been shamed for it. But under him, governors, uh, mayors, and the like are largely speaking in big places, big cities, Democrats. And they've been, you know, I'm thinking of Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo, the two governors of the states I'm most familiar with, California and New York, respectively. They've been quite um, reasonable, apparently, uh, seemingly reasonable, uh, cautious, um, you know, dangerously close to destroying the economy, um, but prioritizing public safety, you know, in their like abundance of caution. And this has apparently seemed reasonable to most voters. I've always questioned why we have to take such draconian measures and why liberals would want to. But if public safety really is the prime thing, then so be it. You know, I'm not, who am I to say otherwise, except for just one man's opinion. I'm not in power. So that's fine. I don't need to make a fuss about that either. But for that to all be subverted for the protests are is pretty funny to me. And now, after a month of these protests, America is now swinging back up in cases. Like, it's pretty funny to see that graph of everyone else kind of flattening their curves, you know, we're on the down on the downturn of their curves and the USA kind of going back up. Can we know what this is from? And is it not kind of obvious that it's from the protests? Maybe not, but I don't, I mean, it seems oddly coincidental that news media at least has been covering masses and masses of people with very, very little social distancing. Granted some mask wearing, uh, but it's all I've been seeing in media is people congregating and largely in an activist or quasi-activist way. And no one is linking these two things together that I'm aware of with a major platform, which I think is strange. But I don't really care. You know, it's fine that people do that. I'm quite, you know, a libertarian principled person in this regard. I believe in the facts, I believe in personal liberties, even at the at the cost of general social safety. Now that's a balancing act that I'm happy to compromise on, but I'm generally in favor of people doing what they want. And if people want to go out on the streets and say it's because of outrage or um, moral outrage at you know innocent death, that's fine with me. But let's be honest, you know, like let's analyze the consequences. It does seem like it's a public health risk. And I, I don't know why this isn't more carefully studied. Maybe it's from the businesses that are opening. Maybe it's an indoor phenomenon. And this is the epistemological question of this whole thing is like, how do we know anything? So I've just I've just got gotten back from this travel that I took to get back home. And I talked to a doctor because I actually don't feel good. And I'm pretty sure I don't have coronavirus because I don't have the symptoms. I have a cough. It sounds like this. 
but I've had it for, you know, since the winter, since like December even or January and it's gone in and out. Um, it's been mostly, you know, non-productive, you know, but lately I've actually been coughing up phlegm in the morning. So I have like phlegm in my chest and my sinuses. That's not a coronavirus symptom. Um, and that's my only symptom. I don't have a fever. I am like fatigued and I'm sleeping really bad, but these are like jet lag things, you know? So I'm experiencing a lot of jet lag. I also did party a bit, not like with a big crowd, but just in an apartment before returning here. So, you know, I'm coming down a little bit from what you could call a hangover. I don't know if, how much any of these come into play, you know? When I traveled, the airport situation was totally fine. The airports were empty. JFK in New York was like no queues at all. I walked straight through security. Like there was nobody in front of me in the security line, literally. And I was concerned of like, you know, sitting in public spaces and stuff, but I found a lounge that was open and it was empty. Like it was staffed. Um, things were like altered, you know, like didn't have the same everything available, but you know, food and drink was still there. Wi-Fi was still running. And things were like being wiped down, you know. I wore a mask the whole time I was in the airport. I boarded the plane with no problems. And there was plenty of open seating. I actually ended up finding like, you know, a place to lay down on the plane. I couldn't sleep though. There was no food and beverage service. There was just like a Ziploc bag full of, you know, a Coke can and, you know, like a sandwich left on each seat. This was like in replacement of service. Um, I asked about if there was any alcohol on board because I like to drink on planes. It relaxes me and helps me sleep. But no, because of coronavirus. Um, so I slept very badly, if at all. And I got back feeling pretty cracked out and tried to avoid getting onto a bad sleeping schedule, but failed. So I've been kind of like feeling unhealthy basically but taking care of myself it's been a while since I've drank and you know I'm kind of trying to detox and maybe lose some weight and I just want to know what's wrong with me and I don't know how to know that so again this is epistemology I called a doctor and he's like yeah doesn't sound like you have coronavirus, but we're, we can't see you unless you come in and get tested for coronavirus. And so I asked him about the tests, you know, because I've heard so many things. I asked if it was painful. He said, no, it's just uncomfortable for five seconds. I asked if it was reliable. He said, it's pretty reliable unless it's administered improperly. So who knows if a doctor is doing it correctly or not? I don't know that. Um, there are very little, he's, he said that the, the false positives or false negatives aren't really an issue with the coronavirus test itself, but with the antibodies test, which I would also like to get in order to know more information about my body, he said that there are a lot of false positives, which contradicts what I had heard in California from a doctor that 
he had tested over 100 people and had no positives. So he was kind of assuming false negatives. And maybe that was administrative or human error. I don't know. And I don't think there's any way for me to know, you know? So it's really like annoying. It's really frustrating to not know these things. So I said to this doctor, well, I don't know if I want to go to the test because I don't know if my insurance will pay for it. My insurance wrote me saying, uh, <clears throat> we won't cover the coronavirus test because it's not reliable enough, but we'll cover the antibody test. Maybe this insurance admin person I'm writing with mixed it up because that information contradicts what the doctor just told me, that it's the antibody test that's less reliable. Um, the coronavirus test costs about 150 bucks. I don't really want to pay that out of pocket if I don't think I actually have it. So the doctor said, you know, just give it another week. Um, wait for your two weeks to be up. and Just self-quarantine. And then maybe we can check you out after that. So I'm just wondering, like, I want a, I want a bill of health. I'd like it to be clean, but I'd like a bill of health in any case, you know. I want to know what I'm experiencing in my body. I have some muscle aches, but not coronavirus style. More like specifically in my lower back from maybe pulling a muscle when I was swimming in Connecticut. I tried to do this flip underwater, and it really <laughs> took me off guard how, uh, how straining that was on my body. Um, I've been doing a little yoga. Maybe that helps. But it's hard to know what actually does anything, you know? It's hard to even know if coronavirus is deadly, frankly. And it's very frustrating for somebody like me who really values knowledge, feels empowered with actually knowing things, to be locked out of such knowledge. I find that really annoying. <clears throat> and coronavirus just has so many unknowns. So I think a lot of us, out of frustration or out of, you know, alienation, did decide to leave the house in June and actually start living a little bit again. Took to the streets, took too many vacations, enjoyed some outdoors, met more friends, whatever it was. I don't think very many people were going crazy. Not that you could even know that because news media is only covering the most sensational stories. And of course, those are always discoverable. But it's hard to know how representative they are, isn't it? So that's annoying. Whenever you watch the news, you kind of tune in in order to inform yourself. But actually, a news media system run for profit by business interests doesn't promise you that because they're all on advertisements or subscription or clicking models. So they have little incentive to truly inform you. And I try to look things up online dutifully, trying to empower myself with knowledge and, you know, autodidact self-education. And I can't find certain things, you know? I was trying to do some research into race relations and the disparities of police violence and the details of a lot of these cop killings. And it's really hard to find some of this information. Why? I mean, statistics exist, you know? There are numbers that are recorded. You would think that they'd be put out there. But what ends up happening when you research something, you know, for instance, 
one of the things as an example, I was trying to figure out how much real racism there is. Um, I'm using the word real there because racism can be at least three things. Racism can be, you know, institutional slash, slash structural, which I think we can measure by looking at actual legal code. Um, but not necessarily because there isn't really any of that in the in the legal code anymore. But there still remains some amount of systemic racism, at least the lingering legacy of it. So that's really hard to measure. And because it's hard to measure, it's hard to really know. You know, people actually end up speaking from a sort of belief about it rather than proving it. And I ask my friends to prove it to me. I get into these uncomfortable conversations where it's like, I'm not saying that systemic racism doesn't exist, but can you prove it to me? And it's very often supported with outdated facts, you know, like redlining policies, which are no longer a thing. So, of course, those things leave a legacy. You know, if, if black people aren't allowed to buy houses in certain neighborhoods, those neighborhood values have only helped white wealth. So that's true. But that's not a current policy. So this is a tricky thing to really suss out, right? Like how you know about structural racism. Then there's the racism of the inner soul, the deep, darker side of yourself that you don't quite understand, your unconscious biases, your, you know, your split second beliefs about people based on their skin. And this is like, what I think is the biggest trend right now is for people to really do this kind of self-work, this white guilt performative act of questioning how racist they themselves are. And we have the video of the Central Park people, you know, this kind of Karen who exemplifies this kind of racism. You know, she uses the PC language of African-American man, but she's still targeting him or something. So she's racist deep down okay, maybe. This is, again, another thing that you cannot measure at all. You just don't know. And, you know, if you even investigate yourself and think, well, I have a business where I hire black people. I have friends that I love to associate who are black. I admire celebrities who are black, athletes, musicians, whatever. Uh, I voted for Barack Obama. You can just go down lines of like things in your life and they make sense as an inventory of your feelings about people, kind of. I mean, to me, they make sense. They're thrown out by a lot of more radical leftists that these don't count, that you might just be, you know, you might have some sort of sick fetish if you date or marry a black person. You might, you know, have an Uncle Tom friend who's not really black. You might have... Um, maybe even your like color blindness is an evidence of deeper racism or may, you know, there's like an excuse for all of these, which is so crazy to me. You might be, um, only hiring black people cause you can pay them less or take advantage of them. Maybe you get off on the slave master slave element, you know, you can accuse people of anything and people do it. People love to do it. But how do you really measure the supposed racism or deep hatred in somebody that seems to not exhibit any of it that's what i would like to know 
And when you think you're you're witnessing it, how do you know that? How do you measure it? So I thought real racism might easily be defined by how many people actually turned up for the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, North Carolina in whatever year that was, a few years ago. I wanted to know how big that march was. I could not find a number on it. I Googled it. I looked up pages and pages of, you know, going through articles. No article mentioned it. Isn't that weird? You know, I'm going to get a little conspiratorial here. There's no benefit for any journalist to write that number, which means to me that it's probably small. I think I remember it being like a couple hundred thousand, you know, let's say like 250,000 or three, 300,000 maybe. Definitely less than a million. Definitely not huge. I mean, definitely more than a few hundred for sure. This is a rally that advertised itself for many months and drew from all around the country. Literally, people were driving across the country or flying to go to this rally. So it was big in the world of actual racists. Now, even then, I'm not even sure how big of a, how much of an actual racist each person was that was there. I know that they were angry. I know that they're conservative-leaning, you know, ideologically right-wing people. And they're attributing their hatred quite often to racial issues like they want a white nation you know that's the richard spencer thing every group of people should be segregated you know and actually like liberals and black people think that too which i think is really weird that they share the same kind of ideology as white supremacists that there's something inborn about being white that you know these races can't coexist that there's some fundamental difference and you know that need, demand separation this is all toxic to me from both sides and yeah i do hear when actual racists speak you know someone like david duke or you know some kkk wizard or something you know like i've seen you know or hate crimes where you know names are being called you know, this does look like actual racism to me. Even then, my predilection is to try and analyze and even sympathize with the, uh, the instigator, the violent person. This, the victim is easy to sympathize with. We can all do that. That's not interesting to talk about. But the perpetrator of a crime is more curious to me. Because I guess I want to get a little religious sounding here. I don't actually believe that very many people are evil and harbor truly deep malice in their hearts toward others. I think that that exists in the world for sure, but I think it's a mental disorder like psychopathy or sociopathy, actual serial killers and people like they're mentally disturbed people. That's not a that's not an ideology to like kill as many people in this exact way and eat them you know like that's not an ideology that's brain damage or something like that but the ideology of separating ethnicities from each other is something else and 
it's celebrated in a movie like Black Panther, but it's demonized in a Confederate person, right? Somebody that like kind of loves the old Dixieland way of life. And obviously to be sure that way of life was institutionally racist by definition. It enslaved Africans to be the, you know, the servants, the uh, feudal class of this aristocracy. So there's no doubt that that system was racist, even though there are also white slaves. Um, chattel slavery in America was obviously racist. I think that would be a good starting point. And then you can go down and think, how racist is this? And I just don't know how you know that. You know, if you're fighting racism, how do you even know what you're fighting? What do you even fighting for for people to not hate that's never going to happen there's always going to be hate somewhere in people's hearts that is accessible hopefully it's not pronounced or used but it's always a component of being a human being there's this phrase that everybody is racist or everybody's a little bit racist i don't like that phrase i don't believe it i think it really we're really ruining the word racism and racist when we apply it so liberally to everything and everyone. But what I will say for it in its defense that everybody is racist is that everybody has the capacity to outgroup others, period. We all have that in us that we wanna in-group with our brethren and we wanna define some sort of outgroup even an enemy, um, you know, and that goes out in concentric circles. You outgroup your neighbor, you know, you don't, you don't share your home or your family dynamics with your neighbors per se, but you can invite them over once in a while. You outgroup the people in the next town, you know, you might have a rivalry with them even, but it's mostly for fun, hopefully, but that also can become toxic. You outgroup the, na the neighbor state or the neighbor country, and, you know, I think America is a good example there. You know, it has two neighbors and it's more toxically vicious and unfair with one of them and more brotherly with the other. And they're both neighbors, you know, but there are reasons for that. It's not like a pure racist thing. There are actual economic and cultural reasons for that. So I just don't know how you can know where you see racism and how you define that. So that really troubles me. And then we have this movement built on outrage. And I think it's cool from all of this. I think two things are really cool. One, I think it's a good statement that we all basically as a nation, uh, at least a country, agree that racist race motivated murder or even harassment is wrong and that has united a ton of people a ton of quarantine <laughs> breaking people <laughs> are united on that really clear and obvious point from my point of view that you know racist asshole cops are bad like can you think of something less controversial to say than that what an obvious thing. And yet it's it's somehow been important that the country has united around that idea and united so 
you know, vehemently and with such ferocity as to demand change. And that's the other cool thing is that there is change happening. I'm not sure about this new um, bill that Nancy Pelosi is proposing. I was just reading about it. This is like um, a federal police reform bill and has a lot of it has a lot of vague language so that worries me it just it does seem political and i doubt that the senate would pass it let alone trump would pass it maybe he would because he did an executive order that also had a lot of vague language but those i'm not counting as real things i'm counting as real things the fact that kentucky outlawed or no they suspended um no knock raids which is how brianna taylor died Breonna Taylor, the headline, of course, was that an unarmed black woman was killed in her own apartment by white cops. Because that's an incendiary headline, and that gets the most clicks, and that's what you as a news consumer are paying for. That's the proverbial you. So, I could say we, I suppose. We get the news that we kind of deserve, you know? This is like kind of the echo chamber phenomenon. We want this narrative upheld that white police are killing innocent black people that's the narrative how do we know that how do we know that that narrative is even true well we have the evidence of uh, george floyd's death for sure and we have the body cam footage of rayshard brooks's death for sure Um, we don't have body cam footage of Breonna Taylor because they weren't wearing them. Now they will. That's another change. In Kentucky, finally they will join, you know, the swell that we won from the last round of BLM activism, which is body cams on police, which is great. I think it's a great step toward police accountability. So that's cool. But how do we know that these were racially motivated? How do we know that this is a sign of racism in police, let alone in the nation. (coughs) Pardon me. How do we know that? If your analysis is that Derek Chauvin is white and George Floyd is black, therefore it's racist, that's... (laughs) I'm about to say that that's, that's racist, but I'm not going to go that far. That's really superficial thinking. That anytime there's violence and the people have different skin colors, it can be reduced to race. That's just simply not necessarily the case. There are so many other factors to consider. And as evidence, <clears throat> I will suggest that you do some research, that we do research on police killings of white people, of which there are tons of them, unarmed, in exactly the same situations. So I think that's interesting just to note that the narrative is not airtight. It could still be the case that we have a problem with racist policing. It could still be the case. And I'm even, you know, sympathetic to the arguments that police forces have been literally built from, you know, many generations ago to support slave owning, the slave owning class and round up runaway slaves or something like that like i can see that logic of course that only applies to the deep south the confederacy uh i guess not only but largely um certainly montana never had this phenomenon washington state never had this 
so there's a lot of holes in these kind of ideological theories. And I guess I just want to put a question to people of ideologies. How do you know what you think you know? What evidence can you use to convince me to believe what you believe? And don't take me in bad faith. Don't think that I'm some sort of, you know, impossible, closed-minded skeptic here. I am happy to believe in many narratives as I grew up believing in. Uh, Believing that racism was a huge problem, for instance. Uh, Believing that sexism was a huge problem. Believing that corporations are a huge problem. Believing that, you know, government can be a huge problem. You know, like these things are really easy for a teenager to believe. And I believed them. And I still believe them to some degree. I've just started questioning, like, oh, how do I know that racism is a problem? When I look around, it's actually really hard to see it. It's really, really fucking hard to see it. And what I mean by that is that I see black people all the time and feel nothing about their race and when I say I see them all the time I mean I see them very regularly throughout my life in varying contexts and that varying contexts part matters a lot because when I see a black person in Los Angeles shopping in Silver Lake next to me at you know a Whole Foods wearing clothes that I could wear I first think, oh, maybe I could be friends with this person, or I wonder what they studied, you know? When I see a black person running the president, like running the country, I think, wow, he's really impressive and admirable, like admirable and inspiring. When I see a black person in Brooklyn walking toward me at night with his pants at his ankles, you know, with a certain swagger, I think I would be stupid to let my guard down fully here. And it's not because he's black. It's because it's night, he's alone, I'm alone, and he has the posture of what I've learned to be a minor threat. And this is what I think people mean with their internal biases, their subconscious biases, and their deep racism within them. This association that basically everybody has. And if you've lived in Brooklyn long enough like I did, you've probably been approached by people like this. And that that interaction was probably not really nice. So we have actual evidence to believe something. And it's unfortunate because it looks bad. But does it make it racist? That's the real question. Is it racist to be concerned for your own safety in conditions that you know, statistically speaking, are dangerous? No, it's not racist. It's, we're policing ourselves too much here. Honestly, guys, honestly, you know, there, of course, this gets muddled because, you know, the people that I'm describing in Brooklyn 
in certain parts of Brooklyn, certain parts of New York City, uh, are disenfranchised, and there's a historical line of thought to trace for their disenfranchisement. And it makes sense. And if I was born in Brownsville, or if I lived in the Carroll Guard or the Borum Hill projects, and had maybe a bad public school or you know a bad family or something some there are systemic reasons why perhaps my mom chose welfare over staying with my dad you know i mean i know that this is getting really ugly um this doesn't sound nice but these are stereotypes for a reason and that reason is actual numbers unfortunately I would love to change these things. I would love to change them, but I just want to be real here. Like the thing I'm describing is actually a real thing. And every New Yorker knows what I'm talking about, that there is a a certain behavioral element to certain cultural situations. And it doesn't apply to all black people, obviously. And I think this is like this, the messy part that people get hung up on. They think, Keith, if you mention all these vicious stereotypes and you're conscious of them when you walk the streets uh, and, and they want to call that racism, I say, hold on, hold on, don't do that. And they say, okay, but then uh, you look around and you, then you go to like, let's say some like Lower East Side bar and then you hang out with black guys. Don't you put that on them? No, I don't put that on them. It's a totally different context. They are living a different life. They're living a life like I live. And when I live my life going to a bar, I don't have my guard up. I don't need to put my guard up, you know, unless there are telltale reasons, telltale signs to do so. There are certain signifiers in life. We associate I mean, this stuff is so obvious. Maybe it's not obvious. To me, it's obvious because I've studied this stuff. We signal our internal lives outwardly to each other through clothing and style, makeup, um, how we do our hair, um, what kind of car we might want to drive, you know, uh, what kind of music we listen to, you know, how we posture ourselves, who we associate with, all these things to a visual learner are legible. You can look at them and break things down. You can understand somebody to some degree. Even if there's some amount of artifice or lie to it, the signifiers are doing work intentionally. So you might meet a girl on the street who's dressed a certain way, and you might think, the way that she's dressed reminds me of my friend group. And therefore, I think I could be friends. And then you talk to her. And then it turns out, oh, she actually is stupid. She doesn't sound interesting at all. I don't think I could be friends. I was fooled. How was I fooled? Oh, maybe because skinny jeans are across the board known to be a good look on girls. And stupid girls can also wear them, right? So, like, skinny jeans are a certain signifier maybe of, like, you know, hipster style or maybe feeling sexy, right? But like a gold chain or even like, let's say more something more obvious, brass knuckles, <laughs> you know, uh, which are a weapon, but sometimes jewelry, 
you know, there are certain signifiers that are so obvious and it cuts across class, it cuts across race. It cuts more toward class conditions and criminal behavior, frankly. And I, I, I expect people to react to me talking this way with, you can't separate race and class. There's like fundamental problems that describe this kind of institutional racism, this, this outcome that's, you know, so concentrated in deep Brooklyn or South Chicago or inner Detroit, where almost all the crime in the country happens. And that's true. And I agree that there are explainable factors that are totally worth getting into. And I love that social sciences aim to know these things. There are actual answers to some of these things. The problem is that this knowledge is taboo. It's taboo knowledge. And it's definitely taboo right now to talk about black culture or black on black crime. Those are two words that you'll never hear about when you watch MSNBC or CNN or read the New York Times or even, you know, click through Facebook unless you have, you know, some right wing demagoguery digging out those kind of stats or that kind of information. It does exist. And it was done by social sciences that are not racist because social science is a liberal profession like most like many professions in academics for sure and it's just too bad because we actually can know things but we choose not to you know i think the you know the george floyd case will be interesting when it goes to court those guys actually want a public trial televised oj style and they probably won't get it because the people don't want them to get it they might want it because there actually is information in the George Floyd death that exonerates these cops. But the court of public opinion, opinion is done. He's guilty. George, or, um, Derek Chauvin is guilty of murder. There's just no doubt about it in public consensus. My personal belief, I don't really care, to be honest. I, I, I accept that these kind of random acts of unfortunate violence and deaths are bound to happen in a country of 350 million people once in a while in a country with so many handguns in a country with so much ill health and granted in a country with a police force that's often culturally toxic police culture is I'm actually surprised that there's not more conversation about that because that's also a thing. I associate it with like footballer culture or frat culture. Like I've always been kind of put off by this as a man, as a growing guy. I've always leaned toward arts and, you know, cinema and like these more soft masculine things versus the hard masculine of contact sports and, you know, beer pong or whatever so yeah culture matters and now we have a culture of protest and activism it's like part of mainstream culture like i thought i would escape it when i got to germany 
because I find it a little insufferable, but it's here too. And it's here because white guilt is easily exportable. <laughs> and, you know, especially for like Europeans that have maybe grown up without ever having a black friend or knowing any black people, it's really easy to prey on their privilege and tell them that, you know, certain communities are really suffering and need help, which is not wrong. And, you know, when we have open hearts, it's easy to welcome that in. I don't, I can't blame anybody on this stuff. I just personally feel unmoved out of maybe some cynicism, out of maybe some boredom, and out of maybe the fact that this is not the way to achieve the change we want. This is a way to actually drive people apart and to make race a bigger problem in the world. And I don't think we should do that. I think we should try and learn to look beyond race ultimately. I mean, isn't that the ultimate goal? To quote Sam Harris, for more and more people and ultimately everyone to think less and less and ultimately not at all about race. So the theme of this conversation has been epistemology. I got into my health and how you know about your own body. I wanted to cover mental health with that. I skipped over it by accident, but I don't know how to know about my own mental health. I've gone to psychologists and psychiatrists. I take mental health medication, but I don't fully understand my own brain. And my body, you know, the body is forever changing. Things can happen to it suddenly or randomly. And doctors don't even know, which really confounds me how medical science can be so inconsistent and poorly executed. To find a good doctor really matters. It really matters. And I do think that there are probably fewer of them than people think. It's not like a mechanic where any of them can do it and maybe they'll just charge differently. Like I think that bodies can vary so much and the attention to those bodies needs really serious professionalism and talent, frankly. So the epistemology of the body is just beguiling to me and I, I hate that. Then I talked about the epistemology of coronavirus and the pandemic that we're still living through and how we know anything. And I saw a tweet. I don't know what kind of journalists sent this out, what their agenda was, but it was like, do masks work? Yes or no? If they work, let us wear them and live our lives and open everything and let us just use the masks. If they don't work and we have to still stay indoors, why do we have to wear them? I think that's a totally valid question, and I think it demands an answer, but I don't expect to get one, not because of some conspiratorial authoritarian design, which I don't rule out, by the way, <laughs> but because experts don't know. Experts don't even know. And, you know, even though they're experts, you know, epidemiologists and the like, it doesn't mean that they fully understand a new disease. You know, I just read that Fauci thinks that coronavirus is mutating and now more infectious. Sure, I guess. I mean, I'm apt to believe him. I don't have real reason to doubt it. 
unless he wants to blame a mutation on the sudden uptick instead of the protests, which he could be politically motivated to do. But we don't know. We don't know fucking anything. And it's really... (laughs) It doesn't make me afraid. It doesn't put me in a state of fear and obedience, which I think it probably does for a large majority of the populace, which is why maybe... I think this is what makes people conspiratorial, myself included. Like... There is so much fear inducement going on and the media really pushes certain narratives that it's really easy to think, oh, wow, who's benefiting from all this fear? Somebody is benefiting for sure. I don't get afraid. I get annoyed. I get frustrated that I can't know these things, that surely there is a technical truth. Truth is real and I can't know it. That really bothers me and with our new race war i think that's this epistemology issue is a big a big thing and i just wish that more people thought about it like that as opposed to just jumping on the bandwagon of anti-racism and that is what it is this is a trend and I'm not saying it'll go away in terms of people going, in terms of people being racist, because I don't think the opposite of anti-racism is racism. The opposite of anti-racism is not caring about race. It's like saying like, what's the opposite of, um, I don't know, the Dodgers winning the World Series, the Astros winning the World Series? No, not caring about it. Basically, you know, like not. You know, like being invested in that duality is a game that I don't want to play, you know? So like when you go to like a friend's house for game night and they say, oh, we're going to play Monopoly. I hate that that's the easy example because it's such a toxic game with interesting life lessons. Do you want to be the thimble or the dog? This is a false choice this is a false dichotomy i don't want to fucking play the game you know so that's how i see racism anti-racism you know it doesn't make me a racist to not join in the trend of posting a, a black rectangle on instagram and it doesn't automatically show support for a movement if you do it just puts you in a trend of like-minded people that are evaluating who their in-group is and you are in-grouping with specific people that you want to associate with which is fine it's totally fine i think my frustration is that i actually thought i wanted to associate with those people too and now i don't and that actually makes me feel lonely because everyone around me wants to play this game that i don't really want to play that's my feeling about it In terms of racism, like, I would love to diminish the amount of bigotry and hate in the world. I mean, of course. But you have to prove to me that this is a problem worth putting down everything for. You have to prove to me that it's more worthwhile than making photographs or movies or reading books or having, you know, a glass of wine with a friend or dating you know like you have to convince me of that you have to convince me it's worth 
breaking quarantine for it. If we can get some systemic changes in police culture and in technical policing, I will be happy with this modern movement. Happy enough anyway. Right now, it affects my daily life in a negative way. And it's not because I think the status quo is fine. I do think it's better than people are being led to believe that it is. That doesn't mean it's fine. Last year, things weren't fine. This just wasn't a headline issue every single day. You know? So yeah, we need to change things. But to harp on this every day and to turn this into a McCarthyist witch hunt of pointing out who's probably racist because they said the wrong words in, you know, this is thought policing. This is authoritarian thought policing. And I'm highly disappointed in leftists that do this because I thought we were against that. I thought we made fun of right-wing people for being so authoritarian. Now I understand that those are different axes and that left-wing people can be authoritarian too. And I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like left-wing authoritarians. So there you go. I'm left-wing, but I'm libertarian. And I feel very firm and strong in that identity. Live and let live, guys. Relax. Enjoy life. Hug people. Smile. You know? Have fun stimulating conversations without them turning into an argument because of ideology. Get ideology out of there. And think about how you can know anything. It's humbling. Until next time, guys. Ciao.